Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he, his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. I uh, saw a Facebook meme the other day. Thank you for braving this rugged Florida weather to be out here this winter time. Saw a Facebook meme the other day. And it showed a a man whose car was absolutely covered with snow. And he must have left his windows open because the snow had just piled into the car. And the meme said, um, Pastor be like, are you coming to church this morning? (laughs) And so thank you. Thank you. You get... uh, you get a, uh, a, a shiny gold star, and uh, it means nothing actually, but it actually does mean the world uh, that you're here today. Because when we come here, we're making this confession. Gathering on Sundays, worshiping week in, week out, attending the gathering of the saints, the people of God under the presence of God, acknowledging the rule of God. Here's what we do when we gather together. We acknowledge that Christ came and that he's coming again. Christ came and that he's coming again. Christ came and that he's coming again. And so we're here in this moment of waiting and and the Advent candles represent God breaking in. Like when we light the candle, the light grows fuller and so one candle is lit and that light shines in the midst of darkness but another one is lit and that light gets more fuller. And so every Sunday as we light the candle, we acknowledge that Christ's light is breaking into this dark world and we need it. Oh, we need it. And that acknowledgement says this is what Advent is about. Advent is, I mean, we're, we're all in the midst of chaos. I don't have to ask you how you're doing. Everybody I've talked to this morning, how are you guys doing? Busy, busy, busy. You know what you're busy doing? You're trying to make the perfect Christmas. You're busy trying to make the perfect Christmas holiday season, making sure the decorations are right, making sure that the kids' wish list is all checked off, making sure that you get that perfect gift for that perfect somebody, 
but let me just kind of let you know a, a little secret. You're in for letdown. <laughs> you really are. Because it's not going to be able to happen perfectly. And, and Christ came, listen, not to make this world just a little bit better. He came to make it perfect again. He came to make it perfect again. And so we acknowledge that reality is that there's this work that we're in, we're in right now in, in between the coming the first time and the second coming where he's renewing his broken world. We're in the already but not yet. He's already come. There's already been something that he's accomplished. There's no more striving. There's no more having to pretend or perform. There's realizing that the cross has, says, has said it is finished. But at the same time, we live in the midst of brokenness. We live in the midst where we're all crying out, Maranatha, Lord, come again. I'll tell you one of the ways I feel God maturing me in my faith most recently, is I, I long for the return of Christ. I've never been able to say that like I just said it now. There's always been a little hesitation. There's always been a little bit of, well, I want to see my grandkids one day, right? Because I want to give my kids H-E double, you know what, because of the way they treated me. Just kidding. My kids are really good. Um, but I still want to spoil my grandkids. I don't want to spoil my kids. I want to spoil their kids. Okay, that's the difference between a parent and a grandparent. (laughs) I want that. And there's these things that I want to see in the church and I want to see renewal and I want to see people come to Christ and I want to see your city reached. And there's all these things I want to see. But if Christ would come back, I don't think I would miss any of those things. I just say, Lord, take me. Take me right now. And, and there's been this maturing process that I've had to go through in order to, to be able to say those things. And I don't think I can fully say it accurately. I think there's still a hesitation that I might experience. And, and that's, that's something that I'm asking the Holy Spirit to, to, to grow me in. And I don't think it'll be fully ever made right until Christ comes to where I'll really understand the gravity of that which I'm talking about. But... Advent season acknowledges that Christ is coming and we are waiting. Christ is coming and we are waiting. And here we are in the midst of the waiting. Have you ever asked the question though, how long? Anybody? How how long is this going to be? I mean, Isaiah wrote this as a prophecy 700 years before Christ came the first time. Here we are 2,000 years later, and so we're reading a very ancient prophecy. I mean, it is very ancient. And so have you ever said, I mean, like Jesus kind of, when's this deal going to, when's this going to come to culmination? Like, when's it all going to be over with? And, And so you start looking for the signs. There's a author that I really like and appreciate. His name's Ray Ortland. He pastors a church in Nashville, Tennessee. He he wrote a commentary on the book of Isaiah. I highly recommend this. It is one of the most readable, understandable commentaries that you can ever get. And it is a biblical overview of the Bible in it. As you read this commentary, he he gives you an overview of the Bible through the book of Isaiah. And, And he writes these words about our waiting. He says, he is not waiting for favorable conditions. In human social evolution, all he has to do is give the order and Christ will come and judge and save and rule. 
Because he himself is our peace. Isaiah is not telling us when. He's telling us who. And that should be enough for us. He's not telling us when. He's telling us who. And that should be enough for us. Let me pause right there. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you? Let every heart prepare him room. There's no trinket or toy that you can get this Christmas that is going to fill the deep hole, the deep longing that only Christ can fill. Is he enough for you? And then the question comes from it, where are you chasing it? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we could say, yes, he's enough, but yes, I need more. Yes, he's enough, but yes, I need more. And that's always the cry of the Christian is that we are filled, but yet we still hunger. We're satisfied, but yet we realize that there's more to Christ than we've ever experienced, that we could experience in this world. And so we're saying, I want more of him. I want more of him. And so there's a gladdening of all things that comes with our satisfaction in Christ. And what Isaiah is talking about is making all things human again. There's something subhuman about our lives that Jesus is bringing renewal to. There's something that's subhuman that we all feel, that we all experience in our lost and broken world. And it's not just out there, it's in here. And so every heart prepare him room is that Jesus is making those things in our hearts human again. Those things that are inhumane. That's sin. That's the fall. That's brokenness. And those are the places Those are the things that we ask for God to move in. Let me give you a little backdrop of what is, uh, what's happening, what's going on in the book of Isaiah in this time. There's a smoldering forest. And all you see in this smoldering forest is barren wasteland with stumps that fill the ground. That's it. It's like a fire has burned and and there's nothing left. And the only thing that you see are these stumps. But yet in the middle of the stumps, you see these sprouts coming about. And these sprouts that are coming about show new signs of life. They actually give hope for the hopeless. And so when Isaiah is writing in this, he's recognizing that Judah has just been through hell and back. They've been through trials and tribulations. King Uzziah, who was the prosperous king, gave himself to idol worship. He he, he broke the covenant, the holy law of God, that said that no one is to enter the temple courts unless they're a, a, a priest. And so Uzziah went in there as if he was a priest, and God struck him with leprosy. And the last 15 years of Uzziah's reign was outside of the camp, outside of the kingdom of Israel, and he was trying to piece together from the outside things together from the outside in but while he was doing that he gave himself to other gods to idol worship and the nation of Israel followed him and while that was taking place God as a sense of chastisement and discipline started allowing the nation of Assyria to arise and they became powerful really powerful all on God's watch And God says to Isaiah, you're going to preach to these people about the message of salvation. And guess what? They're not going to be saved. They're not going to hear it. They're not going to see it. Their hearts are going to be hardened. Their hearts are going to be dulled. And so it seems as if God's promises aren't going to prevail. 
It seems as if God is not going to keep His promise. Now let me tell you a little bit of something about the promises of God. Either God keeps them or He's not God. Because God has the ability to make all of His promises come true because if He didn't have the ability, He wouldn't be God. I mean, if I make a promise to my kids and I can't keep it, it's because there's something I could not foresee that didn't allow me to keep that promise or it's because I simply don't have the power to. God can foresee everything and He also has the ability. And so when God makes a promise, you can bank on it. But it appears here that the message, that the promise would not be be fulfilled. And what was the promise? The promise is that through the seed of the woman would come the offspring that would crush the head of the snake. Genesis 3.15. Through Eve, who was cursed in the Garden of Eden by God, there was also a blessing and a promise. And the blessing and the promise was through you, girl, through you, Eve, through you, precious woman, will come the hope of the Messiah. And then it went the promise to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Jesse and then to David. And then that royal line would continue. But how would the royal line continue if Israel was never going to be there in the first place? And that's why Isaiah says there's a remnant. There is a remnant. And from that stump, there's going to be a shoot. And from that shoot, there will be a new tree. And from that new tree, will come all the offspring of Adam and Eve through the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. He is the one whom we wait for. I mean, it's stuff that's so fantastic. It seems like it's straight out of a fiction book. Have you ever watched or read the book, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Anybody? Anybody? If you haven't, that's your homework assignment, okay? I prefer that you read the book. I realize that it's Christmas season, so you might not be able to. It's a perfect Christmas movie. We watched it with my kids last night. There's this little scene in the movie where they're, uh, they're, uh, it, it, it looks as if Narnia is a wasteland. There's snow covering everywhere, which when we're in Florida, we don't really realize how bad that is. But there are people here today that have purposely chosen to be here today to avoid that, right? And it's snow that's covering everywhere. And and here's the horrible news. There's no Christmas. A hundred years, there's never been Christmas. And so it's a wasteland. The white queen is in control of things and it appears that their hope is futile. And so people are losing faith. But yet the beaver whispers to the children. He says, Aslan's on the move. Aslan's on the move. And when he whispers that, C.S. Lewis, who's a brilliant author, says, and now a various, very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But that moment the beaver spoke those words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps he has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand. But in that dream, it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it your whole life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. And at that name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside them. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. 
Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's just the beginning of holidays or the beginning of summer. Something began to well up inside of their hearts. And Isaiah is whispering, God is on the move. God is on the move. Jesus has come and he will come again. My prayer is that brings something out in you. And if it's not there, you can just pray and say, God, bring it. God, bring it. And I trust that he'll make it happen. So let's unpack verse one here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So what we have in the first five verses of this is God's self-revelation. He's telling us a little bit about himself. And here's the thing to know about God's self-revelation is he doesn't hold anything back. Have you ever took a selfie before? If you take a selfie, you, you try to get that angle and you're like, no, I, I got this thing right here and I won't, don't want people to see that thing right here. So I'm just going to try to get the perfect angle and, and then I'm going to post that so everybody could like it and it'll help me be validated by people's approval, right? I mean, we want to put our best face forward so people will approve of us. God's not concerned with those things. He's not driven by pretense or performance. I was in Foxtail the other day actually working on this and there's this Foxtail wall with this green backdrop and these pretty white lettering of Foxtail. And I must have seen three or four people go back there and take a selfie right by the Foxtail wall. And then there's these two girls that went over there and one had the other one take a picture of her. And so she kind of stood at the angle and then she, the, her friend took the picture and then she looked at it. She zoomed in. She's like, ah, maybe take it at another angle. So she did it again from the other angle. And she zoomed in. She said, like, ah, and then she said, I'll just do it. And so she took it. She looked at it. She's like, that's good. That works for me. <laughs> God has no PR representative. He doesn't have somebody trying to tell him, God, here's what you got to do to make yourself look better to a world that's rejecting you. God's not concerned with those things. He's not concerned about people's thoughts about him. In fact, one of the things that God says to Moses, he says, I am who I am. I am who I am. And it's not like one of those things that I am who I am, like it or not, I'm not getting any better, I'm not getting any worse. No, I'm already perfect. If you don't like it, well, then you need Jesus. And well, that's each of us because we've been able to say those words and say to the God who is perfect, I want nothing to do with you, which is why the book of Isaiah is about Isaiah's name, which means the Lord saves, the Lord saves, the Lord rescues. And it's from the stump of Jesse, David's father, that the Messiah will come and the hope of Israel will be restored. And the multitudes, listen, heaven is going to be filled with multitudes, multitudes multitudes from thousands of years ago. Heaven is going to be filled with so many people. I think we're going to be shocked at who's not there, but I think we're also going to be shocked at who is there. Heaven is going to be filled with multitudes, millions and millions and millions, billions even. And the angel Gabriel, he says to Mary, when she receives revelation that she's going to carry as a 13-year-old girl, 
the son of God. I mean, imagine that. He says this. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne that is of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So God is establishing a forever king through his perfect and holy son. A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you and me. Because it determines everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say. It determines the direction of our lives. So what you think about when you think about God determines the way you live. Determines what satisfies or what fills your hearts. And so what God is doing here is he's correcting the lies that we've believed about God. And he's telling us the truth. Do you hear that? He's correcting the lies that we've believed about God and he's telling us the truth. He is a truth-telling God. And he doesn't tell us the truth to harm us, but to heal us. And so this is a good God who's telling us of his good character. Who is this king? Well, here it is. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. When Jesus met John the Baptist, he himself was baptized by John the Baptist as a fulfillment of the scriptures. And when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him. A dove descended and God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit of God rested upon him. Jesus Jesus knew his words that he said to us were true even of himself. I could do nothing apart from his strength. And so Jesus was a spirit-filled savior. One who is filled with the Holy Spirit with, for everyday life. Shows us if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, so do we. Right? If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to interact with the world like we interact with the world, then we need the Spirit of God in our lives as well. And the Holy Spirit rested upon him. He was led by the Spirit. We see the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He was a good leader because he knew how to take knowledge and apply it to daily life. He had a keen wisdom and understanding of the things of the world. He could see right through those whom he was with. He also knew how to lead. He knew how to disciple. He knew the things that needed to be done and he did them because he was a wise leader who was led by the Spirit. A good leader. A good leader. And he was a leader that was led by the Spirit. He was a leader that was empowered by the Spirit. Spirit of counsel and might. Jesus was the ultimate strategist. He needed counsel. In fact, much of a counselor's job is a strategy for how you're going to accomplish something. How are you going to live? How are you going to make your marriage better or your family better? All those things are incredibly important. You need good counsel for those things. He had a good strategy. And that good strategy was coupled with might. So not only was he a good strategist, but he was powerful. So he had the know-how and he had the ability. That makes a good king, 
right there. That's why he's sitting on the throne right now and he doesn't have any concerns or worries because he knows the end of the story and he knows how to accomplish right now the things that we're going through. And so when you are in need of counsel, there's no greater counselor than the Holy Spirit. He'll counsel you. I promise you that. The Word of God tells us that. Seek Him and you will find Him. I promise you, if you need counsel, the Holy Spirit will do it. Do it with all your heart. And He will. He will minister to you in your most desperate times of need. And He'll give you the power where it's lacking, even in your weakness. He's, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. Speaking from God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I will boast all the more in Christ's weaknesses, so his power would rest upon me. So if you're weak and weary this morning, you are a perfect recipient for God's grace. Just absolutely perfect. Welcome to Crosspoint. No perfect people are allowed. If you are weak and broken and weary, then you are a recipient of God's grace. Congratulations. Congratulations. What did you do to get that? Nothing. Nothing except acknowledge that you need him more than you need anything else in this world. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So different from me. So different from me. I am praying more and more so that my delight is in the fear of the Lord. But if I'm honest with myself, my delight is in the approval of man. And so there's always this battle that I live in, this, this tension where am I trying to live for the approval of others or am I trying to live for the approval of God? That battle was always won out because Jesus was a man that was driven by conviction. It wasn't just a conviction like we see of conviction of guilt. It was a conviction that he knew what was right and he knew what was best. And what was best is that he would not contradict or counteract anything that came from the truth of God. And so Jesus was obedient to God's word fully and perfectly. That's why he was without sin, because his delight, listen, his delight was in the fear of the Lord. Do you want, you want, to, you want help with your sin nature? Delight in the right things. Delight in the right things. That's why the Bible isn't just a rule of don't do this or don't do that or shame on you. No, it's not a book that's given by that. It's a book that's driven for delight. The reason why the commands are given is not simply the, so that we would obey, but it's so that we would delight. And it's through our delight that we obey. We obey for our joy. And when we delight in the Lord, there's this joy and satisfaction that starts to well up in, in, in us. And even we realize when it costs us something, it might cost us the approval of others. It might cost us looking well in others' eyes. I'm going to use the handheld because there was a prophecy in the back that told me to. So, I'm kidding. That was Josiah. He's not a prophet. He's a king. Okay, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Think about that in the world of our politics. Man, how, how it must be so hard to be a politician and delight in the fear of the Lord. There's no lobbyist that you have to appease. There's no campaign financing arms that you have to establish. There is no paybacks that you need to give to somebody who helps you get into your place of power. Nor are there any favors that you have to return. This is why King Jesus is a king you want to follow. 
This is why he's the king that you want to follow, because he's better than any president, king, or prime minister this world has ever seen. He owes nothing to no one and nobody, so he can do what's right all the time. He can do what's right all the time. That's why this king is righteous. And that's why it says, he shall not judge by what the eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. He has the ability to both judge rightly and to also exact justice where it needs to be exacted. He has the ability to do that because he doesn't judge by appearances. There's no witnesses that need to be called to the stand. There's no attorneys that need to be hired. He knows it all. He knows it all. And he judges equitable and rightly. Now, that's good if you're perfect. It's not good if you're not. And so the same one who judges the world with equity in righteousness is the one who offered himself up for the unrighteous. That's the kind of king that he is. He pleads the case before the judge on your behalf. And he's not there telling God why you deserve to get to heaven. He's saying, I deserve it, Lord. I deserve it, Lord. And I stand for them. That's the righteousness of this king. And that's the love of God given to us that nothing in this world can compare to. And he looks after the poor. That's an interesting note here. Tim Keller writes about this. He says, here we're told of a king who's going to care about the poor and identify with the poor. But it's not until Christmas Day that we know the links to which this king will identify with the poor. Christmas means... The son of God was born into a poor family. His parents, went, when they went to get him circumcised at the temple, they gave two birds as the sacrifice. Back in those days, the sacrifice you gave depended on your income. The poorest people gave two birds. He was born into the poorest of families. He didn't come as a general or philosopher, but as a carpenter's son. And look at the, his priorities. He, when he ministered, he didn't just preach the gospel. He also fed the hungry, he healed the sick, and he raised the dead. Wow. You see a God who says, I'm not too busy for poor people. You see a God who says, if you come to me, I'll help you. You see a God who, who became the poorest among us so that he might experience that poverty. Or as 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, so that you by your poverty might taste what wealth is really like. And I'm not talking about the wealth of winning the lottery. You could have that wealth and still be broken. I'm talking about the wealth of being right with God. And the God who judges rightly is the one who stands righteously in your place. And on that cross, 
his wrath, God's wrath was poured out upon him and his judgment and his righteousness was given to you. It's called imputed righteousness. Our our sin was placed upon him and his righteousness came to us and it belongs to us. Why? Because he is mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He is a God who's clothed with righteousness. It says in uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God He wears the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, shoes fitted with feet of the gospel. He is made to give righteousness and give good news. He is ready for it right now. He is always ready. And so when you see injustice being done, you don't have a God who's turning a blind eye towards that. You have a God who's ready to pounce. He's ready to move. He's ready to work on it. And that injustice will be met with either God's wrath or his grace. And the whole thing depends not on a plea bargain, but on the son. On the son. Do you know the son? How will he rule? What will his kingdom be like? Verses 6 through 10. This is curious. I, I, I kind of wonder how the readers would have reacted to it 2,700 years ago. They probably, they probably thought Isaiah was full of it. I'll be honest. They said, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb? Seriously? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb? How does that happen? The leopard will lie down with the young goat? I would feel really uncomfortable if I was that, lep- that young goat. I would feel really uncomfortable. I'd be like, get me out of here. Like, is this for real? It's like Narnia. The animals that are there, they cooperate. They work together. They live in harmony with one another. A little child shall lead them. I mean, just picture a child walking down the dirt road, holding uh, in one hand the leash of a cow and the other hand the leash of a lion. That's, that's otherworldly. It's... It's so fantastic. It seems like it's fiction, but it's not. It's prophecy. It's the way that God's world is going to be made right. I've got kids and I'm not going to let them play in the den of rattlesnakes. No way. But here it says that the Bible is going to like it's going to happen. And I'm going to have no second thoughts about it. Like Lily is going to be playing with rattlesnakes and I'm not going to say, Lily, get away from there. Her mom might, but I won't. (laughs) Listen, God's, there's something that happened that, that caused the whole world to be turned upside down at the fall. And what God says is, I'm going to turn it all right side up. And everything is going to be in perfect and beautiful harmony. That heaven is better than you can ever imagine. That heaven is better than any of your wildest imaginations or dreams. As good as you thought heaven to be, it's a billion times better. That's the gift of Christmas. Unwrap that. Receive it. It's the best best gift you could ever have because Jesus signed, sealed, and delivered it for you on the cross. The babe who was born in the manger was the king who was crucified on the cross and he just so happens to be the king on the throne who is making all this stuff happen right now. While we're living, while we're breathing, we're seeing it and the angels are looking into it and they are saying, wow, what's he going to do today? What's he going to do today? I wonder what this is going to look like. Oh, you want me to fight Satan and his demons, says Michael and Gabriel and all the, arch, all the other angels? We'll do it because guess what? We know he's going to win. 
He is going to win. That this king is making the world right. So rejoice. Rejoice. And I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Romans says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Paul mentions something that we've all experienced this year in this, this groaning. The world's not right. I mean, if you Google tragedies of 2018, let me tell you a little bit of what you're going to find. Parkland High School, 17 dead. High school, 17 dead. Santa Fe, high school, 10 dead. Pittsburgh Synagogue, 11 dead. Hurricane Michael devastated the Gulf Coast of our state. Nearly 30 people dead. California wildfires that are unstoppable right now. Are we ever going to be able to stop them? 91 lives lost. The Indonesian earthquake and tsunami that we know little about was killed more than all of those combined. Almost 900 people dead. Maranatha, God, come back. Bring about your righteousness. And you could say that without fear. You can say that with longing. And that you can say, God, use me to, to help be a part of your kingdom renewal, redeeming plans right now on earth as it is in heaven. The other day, When uh, President Bush died, uh, I wanted to find an opportunity to talk to my kids about what um, death is like, about mourning and grieving even as a nation. I think if any of our presidents, our former presidents die, our nation should grieve, Republican or Democrat or whoever it might be. We we grieve as a nation because there's something that that we all enter into with solidarity as as a free society. And so... There's this picture of, of George Bush casket with uh, his dog, Sully, that's there. And uh, the dog is just laying in front of the casket. And you can see the sadness in this dog. And I showed the, the picture to my kids and I explained the story. And, and I could see Camden just start to, to, to well up a little bit. And I could see, man, my, my kids understand groaning because they could see it in the dog. And they understand loss and they understand pain. And they wonder, man, what if that was my dad? What if that was my friend? Because we know that that there's some things that need to be reversed. And death is one of those things that need to be reversed. And the Bible says that God is reversing all those things. And how is he doing it? He's doing it through the root of Jesse. He's doing it through the shoot of Jesse. He's doing it through the branch of Jesse. Because Jesus is the root of Jesse. He is the shoot of Jesse. He's the branch of Jesse. Jesus existed before Jesse. So he can be all those things. He is the eternal God. In Isaiah 11.10 says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for all people. Of him shall all the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. 
1812, there was a battle going on at Fort McHenry. And a man was there. His name was Francis Scott Key. He was on a boat that was, he was an American, he was an American soldier that was held captive on a British boat. And he looked at the battle going on and, and he fixed his eyes on the American flag. And as he fixed his eyes on the American flags, he saw the bombs bursting. He saw uh, America under siege. He saw the flag under siege. But he kept looking at that signal, he kept looking at that flag. And that flag kept standing there. And that flag was for him hope. As long as that flag stood, it was a signal that says we're standing firm. We will not be defeated. We are keeping going. And he wrote these words. He said, and the rocket's red glare. The bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. There's a signal that America stands and that flag, it waves high today. But I want to tell you about a greater signal that we have right now that tells of victory. And it's the cross. The cross stands as a signal of God's victory over sin, death, and Satan once and for all. Rome thought they would use the cross in order to, to shame their enemies. And God took that shame and he despised it. He despised it and he took the cross that was an instrument of execution and he made it into a sign of victory as a signal for all ages, all nations, all generations that Jesus Christ is Lord, that death is in hell and Christ is in heaven and he is king and he is perfectly ruling and reigning. Still there. Sally Lloyd-Jones says every death is going to die and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him, watch for him, wait for him. He will come, I promise. Where are you looking at that as a signal for your life in your waiting right now? Where are you allowing the cross to be the right ordering of your view of God. If you want to get a good picture of who God is, just look at the cross because the cross shows us how bad you were and that Christ had to die, but how good his grace is and that he gladly died. That shows us the grace of the cross and that victory is met in King Jesus once and for all. There's a freedom here. Set yourself free from trying to pursue perfection in your own strength and know that the king came not just to make the world a little bit better, but to make it perfect. And you and me, by the grace of God, only in the son, Jesus Christ, we'll taste it. We'll enjoy it together and we will be with the multitudes in heaven and we will sing the song of Isaiah chapter six. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Everlasting signal. Because we have everlasting grace. And God, your mercy is so good. I don't deserve it. God, your grace is is more satisfying than anything that I've ever tasted. 
But Lord, I go to other things to fill me. And and God, you bring me back to you. And I thank you for that. God, I I pray that if somebody's here right now and they've never tasted of your grace, Lord, that the signal of the cross would awaken in them something that never awakened before. And like the the words of Aslan, God, our hearts would, would come alive. That we would come alive to knowing that Jesus reigns. That you're on the move. And God, I also pray for those of us who've tried to taste of things and, 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 and had the bitterness or thought it was sweet, but realized, God, that it's not, it's not fulfilling. God, that we would taste you and delight in you and you would be the delight of our hearts. Help us wait, God. Help us long for you. Holy Spirit, help us follow you. Help us trust in you. Help us look to King Jesus, to follow King Jesus, to live for King Jesus, to bow before King Jesus, and to worship you, God. You are worthy of it. We worship you here and now, in Jesus' name, amen.